yourself today, it's this, that you missed a beautiful sunrise service in the first service. And so you guys are kind of the leftovers, right? <laughs> no, not really, not really. No services like that at Covenant. Um, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Nick Gillespie. I am uh, the relatively new community life pastor here at Covenant. And so if we haven't yet gotten a chance to meet, please come and introduce yourself to me this morning. I would love to meet with you. And I have the privilege of opening the word for us this morning as we get to uh, approach the Lord, learn from him, grow with him, uh, and nurture uh, within ourselves um, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, so the Gillespies, that's my family, that's my last name, right, uh, have been kind of on this recent egg kick where we've been eating tons of eggs in the morning, which as parents, me and Allie are really happy, right? Like our kids are getting that great protein that they need before they head off to school and all the activities, right? And our kids are, you know, it's not, we're not forcing the eggs on them. They really want to eat the eggs on their, on their very, very own. And we've been experimenting, making eggs in every single type of way that you can over easy, sunny side up, scrambled. And then even yesterday, my son made for the very first time poached eggs. So a little overdone, but relatively good job. You know, I was really proud of him. Um, so, but eggs have not only been a source of a healthy start to uh, our mornings over the past month, they've also been kind of fodder for really great conversations, ethical, moral conversations. A couple weeks ago, my daughter Madison, as she was eating her eggs, was like, Daddy, don't baby chickens come from eggs? And I was like, yes, they come from eggs. But she wasn't asking out of curiosity. She was asking because she was beginning to really worry that we were, uh, we were murdering baby chickens every single morning, four to six of them. And so she really wanted to know, like, what's inside of the egg, right? Because every egg looks the same. How do I know that I'm not eating a baby chicken and thus, like, committing murder? We haven't yet, I guess, gotten to where burgers come from, but we'll get there at some point in time, you know. Uh, so this particular morning, you know, as all of our kids are very distraught, I got to kind of explain to them where baby chickens come from. And so you see the level of conversation here, right? A little reproduction, a little eth- uh, sort of morality, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I was able to assure for her, you know, that the, that the egg is not fertilized, right? Like what's inside of the egg is not living, right? It's consumable food and, you know, and Kroger knows, hopefully, you know, if there's something living inside. What's inside makes all the difference. What's inside of you What's inside of me makes all the difference. That what is inside of you is what is true about you. That's where we're going this morning. We're going to be taking a look at a passage in Ephesians. And it's uh, one of my most favorite verses. It is a passage of scripture that God has used in my life over and over and over again to continue to refine my heart better, help me understand myself and him and what is truly inside of me. Let me give you a little bit of context before we jump into uh, this passage. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and Paul wrote throughout his ministry multiple letters through churches kind of all over, kind of the Roman world at the time. And sometimes, you know, he had to write letters where he was like laying the smack down. Like there's some churches that were just kind of out of line, had some, you know, wonky things going on, some red flags. And they had to write, write to kind of put out fires and kind of deal with some issues. But the Ephesians church, they were a healthy church, right? They were, they were living out their faith in Jesus and fellowship of Jesus in a pretty healthy way. And yet Paul did not think that they had kind of graduated and sort of figured everything out. He wrote to them to remind them, continue to remind them who they are in Jesus. 
in the passage that we're reading here, he kind of gives like the before and the after, right? We've seen like the P90X like uh, photos, you know, the before, the guy with the big gut and all that kind of stuff, you know, and then the after when he's got like the six or eight pack, right? And so he says, kind of, this is what you were before, but now that you've come to Christ, this is who you are after. And a lot of the letter on the back half is really about how do we flesh it out? How do we really live that out? But this morning, we're going to focus on the, that change. How do we go from the before and after, all right? And what is inside of us as people, And so let me pray for us, and now I'll read our passage of Scripture uh, this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before your word and humbly ask uh, your help. Uh, Would you continue, and would you use your word to uh, help us understand ourselves? Uh, But more than that, Lord, would you open our eyes to who you really are? God, would you help us grow and be nurtured in your good news uh, and the life that we have in Jesus. And we just ask that you would do your work uh, in us. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says this, And you were dead in your trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All right, we're going to pause right there before we continue to make our way through the other parts of this passage. Uh, The Bible doesn't pull any punches. There's a pretty glim kind of picture on humanity and us. And he reminds the Ephesians church, this is what was true about you, that your condition was that you were dead, that there was no life inside of you, you know, that you were severed from God, the one who gave you life. And because you were severed from him, there was nothing good and worthwhile inside of you. He says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that they had arrived at this place of death because not by accident, but because of their heart attitude and intentions and then their own very decisions and actions had brought about what was internally true of them, that they were dead. I, uh, when I was eight years old, went to the library and rented Night of the Living Dead. And uh, it was then that I kind of, lo- I know, right? So <laughs> <laughs> where was where was your mom and dad in this, right? I got a hold of Night of the Living Dead, you know, it kind of freaked me out, but I found my love of zombie movies. I, I can get into guilty pleasure a good zombie movie. It did give me nightmares for a couple of days, but, you know, I still can appreciate it. But what I like, though, is that the Bible affirms zombies. He says that we're dead, and yet we're walking, that, that there's this reality that what is inside of us is spiritual death, and yet we actively live out this death. He says to them, when he says trespasses and sins, Paul is trying to grab a hold of this concept that, that the Ephesians were rebellious failures. First, they rebelled against God, their creator. He said, you know, we reject, you know, God's right and authority over our life as our creator, to, to call us to live according to the way that he's designed and made us, right, to have rights over us as our creator, we reject that. We rebel against that. And then in their rebellion, they went and failed. Not only did they fail God's design and God's commands, but that they also failed their own morality. 
that their own sense of what's right and what's wrong, that they couldn't even live up to what they thought, what they believe was true. And because of that, they were dead. And yet they were walking. They were actually moving. I mean, what do zombies do, right? They consume, right? They consume brains, you know? And so what Paul is saying is that in the death, you know, we are, in our spiritual zombieism, like we are consumers of self in our world in order to try to somehow make ourselves happy and whole. And that's this entire kind of uh, echo chamber that he talks about here when he says that you followed the course of the world, you followed the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, all right, that he's saying that there's a real evil spiritual power that has power over us, and that you also then lived out your passions and your desires of your body and your mind, that we lived in this echo chamber that, that encouraged, validated, and celebrated the consumption of self for happiness. And because of that, we are in this condition of death. The world says that to us, does it not? What makes you happy? Go get that thing. I'm cool with you doing whatever you need to do in order to be happy so long as you don't hurt anybody else, or particularly me. You can do what you, and then let me do what I think is best for me so that I can then have happiness for myself. And we encourage each other and then celebrate each other in order to pursue this pathway, this life philosophy. And it's garnered along and encouraged by the lies of the evil one. That Satan very much does two things when he lies to us. First, when he lies, he always makes us look better to ourselves than we really are. He always makes us want to think that we're not as broken as we really are, that the death isn't as real as it really is, that we're not that far off base. We just need a little bit of help, not a whole lot of help, right? So we're better in our own eyes than we really are. And then Satan also lies and also wants to uh, corrupt our view of our creator. He's not as good as he really is. He's not as trustworthy as he really is. He's not as loving as he really is. He certainly doesn't have your best interest in mind. And then this leads to this lifestyle of just doing what we think is best. Finding our passions, pursuing our passions, carrying out the desires of what we believe to be true and whatever our body wants. And he's saying, this is how you live. And so the world encourages us Satan has deceived us, and then therefore we are trying to seek life by self-fulfillment in this, life, in this lifestyle, this echo chamber of how we live and think and carry ourselves through this world. And as the Bible says, we are spiritual zombies. We're dead on the inside, and yet all we are trying to do is consume, consume. Uh, the ha- uh, movie Hacksaw Ridge came out a couple years ago. Um, I immediately fell in love with it uh, when I first saw it. It's such an inspirational movie, and it's about this, uh, this true story, real-life guy, Desmond Doss, who was a World War II hero on the Pacific Coast. If you've ever seen it, I highly encourage you to see it. But Desmond's story is this, is that um, in the Pacific Coast, he was a medic, and he basically, you know, over and over and over again, kind of sacrifice, risk his own life in order to drag guys off the battlefield, you know, in order to, like, save soldiers. But what's interesting about Desmond is that he never carried a weapon. He was a pacifist. And so for him, he said, I will never carry a gun. I'll never point it at someone. I'll never harm somebody. But I will give my life in order to help, you know, rescue other people. But the way that Desmond arrived at his pacifist 
convictions was because he had a spiritual conversion early on in his childhood. You know, when he was roughly, I don't know, seven to nine, ten-ish, something like that, he was wrestling with his brother. This is the way the movie depicts it. He was wrestling in the front yard with his brother, and his brother, as older brothers do, kind of made him a little upset. And so in his fit of rage, he grabbed a rock and struck his brother in the head with the rock, almost killing him. And his brother laid on the ground unconscious. His parents ran out of the house, picked up his brother, carried him in, called the doctor. And Desmond then is sort of in front of the bedroom where the doctor and the parents are working to uh, save his brother. And Desmond there is having this man-in-the-mirror kind of moment where he's having to see for the first time like who he really is. And his parents shut the door on him. And he then walks in the living room and he sees posted on the wall God's Ten Commandments. And there he reads, Thou shalt not murder. And Desmond realized, even though I am in a boy, that deep inside of me that there's a murderer that lives that needs to be dealt with. And it's then that he has a conversion experience, um, asking for the forgiveness of his sins and accepting in his life the forgiveness of Christ. For me, the reason that this passage is so personal is it was true of me. I didn't strike my brother in the head. I didn't have a brother, but, you know, I didn't strike anybody in the head. uh, head. I didn't almost kill somebody. But as I was coming of age, as I was kind of literally kind of becoming like that 18, you're an adult sort of thing, I just began to go through this season of my life where I began to say, who am I really? I began to kind of have my own man in the mirror experience. The outside of the egg for me always looked really white. I was a nice kid. I did well in school. I was an athlete. I tried to be nice. I was a people pleaser. What can I do to get your affirmation? What can I do to make sure that you like me? This is the way I live. This is the front that I put on. I had no problem doing it. I was good at it. You know, I had enough self-control in order to live what seemed like a moralistic life. But I knew, I knew it wasn't true. I knew, no one else knew, I knew the secrets I was hiding. I knew the lies that I told in order to keep that image. I knew the people I manipulated in order to get self-pleasure for myself. And I, at right about the age of 18, began to become very uncomfortable with my own personal hypocrisy. I began to look at my internal man and say, there's not life there. And certainly if I stand before God, I am just like the Ephesians here. I am guilty before God. Because I can't even keep my own moral structure, let alone God's moral structure. I needed a change. I needed a change from him. What's awesome in this passage is that actually in the original Greek, right here in the English, we have a period after mankind. But in the original Greek, there is no period. It's this one giant long run-on sentence, which my wife hammers me every time I write long run-on sentences. She's like, don't write long run-on sentences. But Paul does. Verses 1 through 7 is just this giant long run-on sentence because I don't think he wants the Ephesians church to sit in the before picture very long. He immediately goes to verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. This is the most beautiful, the biggest but in the Bible, I think, but God steps in 
when I am dead and walking out in this echo chamber of death and self-consumption, God steps in, changes the game. Why? Because he is love. Because he is merciful. Not because of me, but because of him, always because of him, who he is. A couple years ago, well, probably about a year and a half now, my uh, Allie and I, you know, we decided to go on that journey of like a finding like the family dog, the family pet, which I was really hesitant about um, and put up many roadblocks, but Allie was persevering and overcame those. But, you know, we began to kind of go on a search, like, all right, we're going to get a family dog. All right, we're going to do this. And we were kind of like, well, once you start to decide, like, hey, we're going to get a dog, you begin to say, like, how are we going to find the dog? Do we go to the puppy mill? Do we find, like, a legit breeder? You know, do we go to the Humane Society? Do we adopt the dog? Do we foster the dog? How is it that we're going to obtain this dog? And what was not on the table once at all in the discussion was let's go to the road and find some doggy roadkill and love that thing. No, we were already thinking of let's find a dog that's already alive that doesn't have a home that we can bring into our home. But really, God, what does he do for us? We are roadkill. We don't have life. And God picked us up off of the road and brought us into his home and loved us, even though we were so unlovable. And he loved us back to life. It's incredible. It's the most beautiful, glorious, good news. And we cannot not talk enough or celebrate or remind ourselves of it. And that's what Paul is doing for the Ephesians here today. Being rich in mercy, that God met them right where they were at. That when I was 18, and I was realizing I'm not as good as I pretend that I am, God met me right where I was at. I was a spiritual zombie, and yet God met me in that place. And then he applied his love to me. That he didn't look at me and say, man, Nick, if I just love you, there's all this potential in you. And, you know, I'm going to, I want to kind of revitalize who you are. No, he looked at me. and was like, you're broken down. You are dead. I am love, and I will now apply my love to you. I love you just for who you are, the wretch that you are. That's what God said to me. That's what he said to the Ephesians. That's what he says to you today, because he is love. Now we get to receive that love. We don't have to wonder why it comes to us or how it comes to us or what we bring to the table. We don't bring anything. It's, as I've already said, all him. Scripture affirms this over and over again. Romans 8, 5, 8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That even when I was rebelling and turning my back towards God, that even in the midst of that, Christ gave his life for me, gave his life for you. Why? To demonstrate his love, to show you how loving he really is. And then it's God's love that brings us back to life. It's this amazing reversal. The most amazing transformation of before and after happens. Our condition before was death, but now our condition is life. We were roadkill, but now we're alive, happy, at home with him. He made us alive in Christ, with Christ. This new life births new desires. I'm no longer enslaved to the desires of my flesh, my own passions, whatever I think is best, I now have a new set of desires, of desiring to please my creator and desiring to please him and live right with him. But I'm also given with this life a new power to live it out. 
I'm not somehow responsible for somehow trying to conjure up within myself the power to live it out. The life now gives me the power through his Holy Spirit to live it out and to please him. And the life gives me a new experience. Not some sort of self-happiness, but a God joy that he puts inside of us. But there's more. There's even more that Paul says. He says that we are made alive together with Christ here in verse 5. We are now in a new community. It's not just a me, it's an us. That before I was this rebellious failure, but now I'm a part of the family of forgiven saints, like all of us. We now have a new spiritual fellowship and community. Not only that, we now have a new honor and a new position. Christ is at the right hand, the honored right hand of the Heavenly Father. And we are in him. We get that honor because we are in him. And we have a new hope that eternity isn't just sort of like this continual worship service. What does it say here? What is our eternity? That, that in the coming ages, God might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. That for all eternity, he will continue to bless us and continue to bless us, continue to bless us, not because of us or what we've done or even how we've necessarily, well, we've performed this Christian life here on this earth, but because he is love because he is rich in mercy, because he is a good gift giver, he will do this for us for eternity. What is true about you is that you're loved by God, and this defines what is in you. What is true about you is that you are loved by God, and this defines what is in you. So what do we do? What's kind of the next steps How is it that we begin to live this out, this good news? One, we can rest in it. That we can uh, not just lean in, but lay on it. I mean, we say that a lot, right? Kind of lean into this concept, kind of think about this more. But there's also this point where we just sort of say, I don't have the answers. I don't know how to fix myself. I don't know how to make it better. I don't even know how to live out a faithful followership of you, Jesus. I'm totally dependent on you. We lay on it. We abandon ourselves to the fact that he is love. He is faithful. He is good. He is full of mercy. He is gracious. And we don't, for one moment, trust in our merits or pursue our merits as if that is somehow going to give us life. You know, this guards us against things like Christian karma. I mean, karma is like an attractive world philosophy, right? Because we want to believe that we contribute something to the goodness that we receive in life, right? And somehow when there's the badness of life, we want to somehow figure out why I'm experiencing badness. Well, maybe it's something that I've done. But there is no Christian karma. That's not a real thing, you know, that I always receive the good because of God's love. And even in the times that I am weak, I celebrate that because it just gives me an opportunity to lay on more my dependence on him and his goodness and his might and his power. It's guards against Christian karma. Second, it guards against personal performance. That it's not about me being saved and all of a sudden operating my faith on my own strength. Like I said, I said this ministered to me throughout my Christian life so far, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it will even in the future. But for a long time, that people-pleasing tendency was still within me. 
you know, I came to Christ and I continued to be like, well, God, thanks for saving me. Now I'm going to try to figure out somehow to, uh, somehow to earn your approval. Just like now I'm going to try to uh, earn the church's approval. And so I did the Christian ministry and I tried to do these things. I tried to change my moral behavior, tried to do all the disciplines in order to, for people to celebrate me and all that kind of stuff. And I just fell right back into it's about my merit and what I have to do. It, but this passage frees me from that burden because it's never about what I bring to the table. That's not what God has asked. There's nothing wrong with being a healthy person or growing into, you know, who God has made you to be and personal growth and leadership. Those things aren't, aren't, aren't bad, but that's not the goal. God's goal for you is always his glory. It's always for you to be focused on him and living in him. But even as Christians, can't we so easily just kind of say, well, God saved me. Now it's about me becoming the best version of myself. And we just pursue all these different things in which we're trying to produce within the side of ourselves our own life. And we make those things a goal. Personal growth, sanctification is a real thing, right? But it's always a fruit from the life that's in us. And so as I rest on God... As I rest on God, I don't have to attempt or believe or think that somehow it's personal performance. So I rest in his love. Secondly, I receive his love that I daily, moment by moment, remember, thank, and celebrate who he is and the love that he gives me. It guards me against apathy. Days where I roll in here on a Sunday and I just feel like it's another Sunday, I can remind myself, no, today is another day where I get to be warmed by his love. It, it uh, guards me against the downward spiral of guilt and self-loathing that happens when we're, we're struggling. And just more of that junk and that death is coming out of us as God is refining us, that I don't have to live in, in guilt or defined by the things that I do, the outside of the egg, because the inside is always life because of his love. And it guards me against pride when I am operating my Christian faith pretty well. I'm feeling like I'm doing a whole lot of good for the church and for the world and for the community and all this kind of stuff that it guards me against becoming a prideful person as if I have it all together, as if somehow I'm different from you because I'm living it out better. I'm not because we all come in with the same before picture and we all come out because of God's great love with the same after picture. So we rest in his love, we receive his love, and thirdly, we reverberate his love. That living things live. That when the life of Christ is in me, then it flows out of me. We as Christians get to create our own echo chamber, or God has made it for us, I should say. The echo chamber of the world is about self, and it leads to death, but God's echo chamber is about him, and it leads to true life. And that as I receive the love from God freely, not for my merit, and I grow in that, and I now give it to other people. I now get to invite them into the same good news. The reason I share this so often is that, you know, when I run into, minister, talk to people that are struggling, and people struggle a lot, I just say, hey, it's not a little struggle. It's a major struggle. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Ephesians 2 and talk about, like, where you're actually really at spiritually. And so I open this passage to them to show them you are loved by God. And so what is our ministry? I know covenant's ministry is making Jesus known because our hope is only in him. But for us, as we speak it, as we talk to people, man, can't it be so easy to go from our ministry being about God loves you to you're not that bad. You're not that bad of a person. No, actually, we're always worse than we think that we are. But God is always so much more loving than we ever can imagine that he is. 
And it's there that we rest, we receive, and then we dispense it out to others. Church family, I know for myself I've found such tremendous peace living in and growing in this passage. And every time I feel caught up in pride or guilt or apathy, it's passages like this in Scripture that remind me, again, it's not about the outside of the egg, but the fact that God has planted within me his life. It's, just about, it's about me seeing him and trusting him in that season, that moment, the love and life that I have in me in Christ. I don't have to bring anything to the table. I was never meant to bring anything to the table. It's always been about God. And therefore, I can live humbly, receiving with great confidence the blessings that he gives me, not wondering why they're coming to me as if I've done good, and not wondering why they're not there when I know that this is a season where I get to lay on him more. I can go to him with the things that I need, knowing that he cares about me and he hears me and he will provide for me as he sees fit. And I can live in this life-giving echo chamber, not just in this life for all eternity, where I get to both enjoy it, share it with you, share it with our community and our city for now and for all eternity. Because what is inside of you is that you are loved by God and this is what defines who you are. Let me pray for us to end our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, you are love. And with your great love, you loved us. God, will we not forget that? God, as the lyrics of the song go, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that you would give your only Son to make us wretches your treasure. God, grant us a humility this morning to receive it, to celebrate it this morning. Lord, cast our, the eyes of our heart onto you. Receive anew your great love through Jesus Christ. Amen. As uh, a church family, we get to, this morning, enjoy uh, communion as we do 